This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Listener supported WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to The New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. This year's midterm elections ended with a sigh of relief for defenders of democracy. There seems to have been no violence and relatively few races that were challenged by the losers. Extremism fared poorly. But a significant number of election deniers did win seats in the House of Representatives, and states are still chipping away at voting rights. And Donald Trump will continue to do everything he can to undermine faith in the process. So we're going to take a look at where we stand now in the wake of that election. And in our next episode, I'll be talking with the authors of the cheerfully named bestseller, How Democracies Die. And we'll start today with J. Michael Ludick a retired judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals. Ludig is quite a prominent figure in legal circles. He's close to everyone from Clarence Thomas to William Barr, and he was mentioned as a Supreme Court pick during the George W. Bush administration. But Ludig finds himself at odds now with the Republican Party. And in his testimony to the January 6th committee, he harshly condemned all efforts to cast doubt on the 2020 election. Donald Trump and his... Allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. I don't speak those words lightly. So this well-established conservative is now allied with the Democratic Party on a legal case of enormous consequence. Judge Ludig is co-counsel in Moore v. Harper, which is appearing in front of the Supreme Court on December 7th. That case hinges on what is known as the independent state legislature's theory. That was the justification that Trump and his team gave for their effort to overturn the presidential election. So the stakes for that case could not be higher. Judge Ludig, you told our writer, Jane Mayer, that you signed on as co-counsel because you regard Moore versus Harper as, without question, the most significant case in the history of our nation for American democracy. What exactly is this case, and why is it, as you put it, legally, the whole ballgame? The reason that Moore versus Harper is the most important case since the founding for American democracy is this. 
at issue in the case is something called the the independent state legislature theory of constitutional interpretation, whether the state Supreme Courts are authorized to review redistricting decisions under the state constitutions and invalidate those redistricting decisions where they are unlawful. But to cut to the chase, I think I would say this. Um, gerrymandering of congressional districts is one of the most nettlesome and important political issue of our times. And the independent state legislature uh, theory that is being argued uh, by the petitioners in, this, in Moore versus Harper that would allow for uh, partisan gerrymandering to go unchecked uh, from now on. It would, in theory, allow the state legislatures to appoint electoral slates who would vote for uh, a president, a presidential candidate who did not win the popular vote in, in the states and transmit those votes to uh, Congress to be counted on January 6th in exactly the same way that Donald Trump and his supporters attempted to do in 2020. Now, this all comes with an enormous amount of political context. You are a figure, I think it's fair to say, on the conservative end of the legal establishment. You clerk for Anton Scalia and Warren Burger. You helped Clarence Thomas prepare for his extremely dramatic uh, confrontation with the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, you have a close relationship with the Chief Justice Roberts. And on January 5th, on January 5th, a lawyer for Mike Pence came to you for advice about what Vice President Pence should do in the face of the President of the United States pressuring Pence to... Uh, in in essence, reverse the election uh, come the next day. That came to you as a surprise. What was your reaction to that? Tell me that story. Well, in short, um, Richard Cullen, uh, who was then outside counsel to the vice president and had been for a couple of years, and who's a dear friend of mine, called me first on the night of January 4th and asked me what I knew about John Eastman. John Eastman was a, a a clerk of mine 20, 25 years ago. And I told, uh, you know, Richard, John was a, uh, a a constitutional scholar, an academic, a, a brilliant individual. I told him that. And I said, well, why do you, why are you asking? And, and Richard said, you don't know, do you? And I said, no. And he said, uh, well, John is advising the president and the vice president that the vice president has the authority to overturn the election by uh, rejecting uh, state electors' votes from some of the swing states and or delay the counting of the vote uh, on January 6th in order to give swing states opportunities to submit alternative electoral slates. Um, so I said, uh, no, I didn't know that. I said, you can tell the, the vice president that, that I said uh, he has no such authority and he has no choice but to 
accept the uh, electoral votes uh, as they have been uh, transmitted to Congress. And Richard said, he knows that that's your view. And I said, uh, okay, you know, I'm, I'm available to help if, if, in any way that I can. And, uh, and we hung up. My wife said, well, what was that? And, and, and I told her, and she said something like, oh, my God, uh, you have to do something about this now. Uh, you have to stop this. And I said, well, I'd, I really have no role here whatsoever, and there's nothing I can possibly do. But was, uh, your immediate, was it your immediate sense that John Eastman had a sincere legal belief that this was possible, legal and right, or that he was part of a plot, to be perfectly honest, as it's been put by the January 6th committee, part of an attempt at a coup d'etat? I, I thought, knowing John, that there had to be something to what he was saying. But I knew at that point, uh, from my own knowledge of all the issues, there was nothing there that would warrant advice to the President of the United States of America, who was at that point attempting to overturn a presidential election. But did I think that John must be thinking something? Yes. And it turns out that he was. But once I knew what he was thinking, I categorically rejected it as a basis for for advising the vice president. But in any event, so um, my wife and I went to bed that night with her pleading with me to do something, and I saying to her repeatedly, I just, there was nothing I could do. So then the next morning, the phone rang, and it was Richard Cullen. This is the morning of January 5th, and and, and he, he calls, and he says, you know, Judge, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just having my coffee. And he says... Uh, look, we have to do something, uh, um, you know, immediately. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he, he said, the vice president is, is meeting for lunch with the president to tell him that he, he's not going to yield to the president's demands the next day. And Richard said, uh, um, we need to get your voice out to the country explaining uh, that the vice president doesn't have the authority either to uh, award the presidency uh, to, to Donald Trump or even to delay uh, the counting of the votes. And uh, that set in motion, uh, you know, me scurrying around trying to figure out what it even meant for me to get my voice out to the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was retired. I didn't even have a fax machine uh, or a box of stationery. And, and <laughs> I've got to assume that you were not that active on Twitter. I did never even cross my mind because I didn't know how to tweet. But uh, at the end of the day, I ended up tweeting what um, the, the the country knows now to be the the, the tweet that uh, um, the vice president uh, included in his letter to the nation on the morning of January 6th as he was on his way to the Capitol. For those who don't recall, the tweet read, the only responsibility and power of the vice president under the Constitution is to faithfully count the Electoral College votes as they have been cast. Now, I've got to ask, did you have a hard time setting up a Twitter account? Oh, my gosh. Uh, my very first tweet took five hours. <laughs> uh, and uh, I literally asked five of the, of the countries leading Supreme Court reporters to help me. And at that, I believe I ended up uh, 
printing out what I wanted to say in Word, taking a snapshot of it, and posting a picture of that Word document. Uh, so so that's the Republic under- is hanging in the balance, and you're having a hell of a time trying to figure out how to be Paul Revere and, and, and set up a Twitter account. That's a little nerve-wracking. It, 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 it was more nerve-wracking than, than the actual drafting of, of the words that went into the tweet, David. I'm talking with J. Michael Ludick, who's co-counsel in the Supreme Court case Moore versus Harper. We'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They are one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. What was your reaction when you heard that the Supreme Court had agreed to consider the independent legislature theory of John Eastman's in the case of Moore versus Harper? Four justices of the Supreme Court signed on to hear this case. Why do you think the Supreme Court has agreed to consider what really can be described as a fringe legal theory? Well, the Supreme Court takes many cases in which it, as in this context, uh, affirms the decision below. So the fact that the court uh, took it means nothing beyond the fact that the court understands that this issue is of great uh, national importance and that it, it has an obligation to decide the case. You strike me as someone who does not think that the alarm about the state of American democracy is overstated. 
Tell me what you think has happened in the conservative movement in the Republican Party. As somebody who's now retired and free to speak about this, what happened that things shifted to such an alarming degree that we're in the state we're in? Yes, I'm deep, deeply concerned that American democracy, you know, today is on a, a knife's edge, and there's no dispute as to to why it is either, because you you had a, a an incumbent president uh, who who was intent on overturning a presidential election, and tried, and uh, almost succeeded. The Constitution doesn't uh, contemplate and therefore does not provide for something like was attempted on January 6th. So suppose the vice president had gone along and announced in the joint session that uh, Donald Trump was uh, elected the next president of the United States. There is no entity of government and no official of government, including the Supreme Court of the United States, who would have known what to do. You know, we've just come through a midterm election where election deniers were often defeated at the polls, and some people are responding by saying, problem solved. Do you have that level of hope? I I just watched an interview on public television with Bill Barr, in which he couldn't have been more critical of Donald Trump and obviously hopes that he will be eliminated as a candidate. But when pressed to say, would you refuse to vote for Trump if it came to that in a general election, he said, well, it would have to depend on who the opponent is. He didn't rule out, he didn't rule out another term for, for Trump, even though he's so obviously repelled by Trump, even though he resigned at the very end. That, that, to me, is very, very curious. Bill's a political figure, just like all of the other political figures and the political leaders in our country today. Our politicians and our political leaders have failed us. That's the way I see it. And in this instance, they failed us, you know, at it, it, it the very end um, by refusing to speak up. Well, how do you, if, if I can interrupt, I'm sorry, yeah. how do you analyze that? Or is it so wonderful being in power that you sell your soul for it? I, I don't quite understand it. I just don't, it, for the life of me, forgive my naivete, I do not understand why, at this late date. Uh, it, it, it is uh, embarrassing, but our political leaders will cling to to power at any cost and they will say anything necessary uh, in order to, to cling to their own power. They actually don't even try to rationalize it, which in itself is disturbing, but revealing. <laughs> That's abdic- abdication of, 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 of official obligation and responsibility. Of the, of the highest order. So that brings me then to, to the heart of, of the question you just implicitly asked, which is, you know, where do I see things today? I've said uh, 
uh, I, I've said very recently on the heels of the midterm elections that uh, American democracy was victorious in that election primarily because the election deniers were uh, resoundingly defeated at the polls. Now, of course, that statement predated uh, the former president's d- uh, announcement that he would run for the uh, the presidency again in 2024. And so, you know, unless he tells us differently, you know, his intent is, is to uh, carry forward with his plan to uh, overturn the 2024 election if it becomes necessary. But I've been sounding the alarm as to the Electoral Count Act reform also. I've been advising the both the Senate and the House to in, in, increase the percentage of each house necessary to to sustain an objection uh, that that is made. Right now, literally, it only takes one member of each house to object to a state electoral slate and send it into the joint session for decision on the objection. Well, we saw, you know, how pernicious that provision is. All it takes is one senator, one member of the House, and, and of course, uh, we had that in 2020. Judge Ludic, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again for having me. J. Michael Ludig is a retired judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals, and he's co-counsel in the upcoming Supreme Court case, Moore v. Harper. Oral arguments will begin in the case next week. Now, in a few days, I'm going to interview Ina Garten, the great barefoot contessa of Food Network fame. And if you have a question, you are dying to ask Ina about a holiday favorite you can't seem to crack or some recipe that's just a little out of your comfort zone, send it to us. And make sure to tell us your name and where you're writing from. And I'll put some of your questions to Ina Garten when we meet. Send us those questions by emailing newyorkerradio at wnyc.org. That's newyorkerradio, all one word, at wnyc.org. Or find us on Instagram and respond to our Instagram story at New Yorker Mag. And we'll see what Ina has to say. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado. This episode was produced by Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Putubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kuchman, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. 
Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.